Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett, and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe, and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of Debriefing the Briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. We know now for sure that the mitigation that we have been doing is having a positive effect, but you don't see it until weeks later. We are still in awe really, of the American people's strength in this and following through. I think all of us know this is one American at a time. It's one heartbreak at a time. In terms of the economy, what if you urge Americans to go back to work and they don't listen to you? Would you leave that up to the governors? Well, when you say uh, they don't listen, I think they're going to listen. They want to go back. Everybody wants. They're going stir-crazy. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent, Major Garrett. Hello from Washington, and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the highlights of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. The April 8th briefing was the 35th of its kind. It lasted one hour, 43 minutes. President Trump participated for roughly one hour, and the biggest headline came near the end. New CDC guidelines on essential workers, defined as first responders, fruit supply workers, and healthcare workers, when they can go back to work, even if there's a threat of exposure to COVID-19. Well, according to the CDC, they can go back to work if they are A, asymptomatic, if their temperature is taken before they begin their work shift, if they wear a face shield and observe social distancing. The CDC also asks employers to increase airflow at work sites and to clean work sites much more diligently than they have before. Also, it was announced that Rhode Island and metropolitan Philadelphia areas are areas of concern for COVID-19 and that health professionals in the task force are still watching closely New Orleans, Detroit, Chicago, Boston, Denver, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore. And on this April 8th, as many Jewish Americans are observing Passover with a Seder, probably online, Vice President Mike Pence said this Sunday he will observe Easter services online and all religious gatherings this Holy Week should observe the guidance of no gatherings larger than 10 people. Also, Dr. Deborah Burke said pregnant women in America should take all their appointments and deliver their children in hospitals with confidence in their safety. I want to bring in White House correspondent Paula Reed to talk about other things at the briefing. Paula, there was a conversation at the briefing today that also involved the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and a question as to whether or not the director of the World Health Organization ought to be asked to resign or somehow replaced. Then the president weighed in on the World Health Organization. Generally, I want to play you those two pieces of sound consecutively. Wondering what your thoughts are on that. Senator Martha McSally, for example, has called for Dr. Tedros to resign. I, 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 I don't want to look. It, this, this is not the time to be to be 
doing that kind of change, there, there'll be a lot of time to look back and see how the World Health Organization performed. In the meantime, we're holding back. We're going to, we want to say, very unfair. So the United States, $452 million compared to $42 million. That's to the World Health Organization. That's not good. That's not good. Not fair. Not fair at all. It should be pointed out that in early February, when the president released his most recent budget, he had already called for a reduction by 50 percent in allocations for the World Health Organization. But, Paula, this is an, uh, a topic that touches on two things. One, a quote unquote global organization the president has criticized. And two, China. What are your observations about both? Well, clearly a red meat issue for the president. As you noted, the opportunity to criticize uh, a global organization that is under scrutiny right now, where there is an enormous disparity that the president pointed out in the amount of money the U.S. uh, gives to this organization versus, in particular, China. But let's go back to the beginning. The first clip you played, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, his response to this and what should be done about the World Health Organization was to take the diplomatic route. Not yet. It's too soon to talk about consequences either for China or the World Health Organization, but there will eventually be a time for us to to review that and, and to really look at what happened here. But President Trump, as you noted, he believed in terms of the World, the World Health Organization, it's fine. Let's look at it right now. And he read down the numbers. He said, look, hundreds of millions of dollars flow into this organization from the U.S., Or is it just about 40 some odd million uh, from China? And he said that for now he's going to hold back and they're going to study their contributions. The president is not the only one who has criticized uh, this organization's handling of coronavirus. Overall, there are questions about whether this organization was too trusting of China. Uh, They didn't push back on some of the earlier mistakes or misstatements about what was going on in Wuhan. World Health Organization, though, says, look, they, don't, they only have limited limited powers uh, to, to take action against certain governments. But this is definitely a political fight the president can afford to take up. But there's still this outstanding question of China itself, right? The president wasn't asked about that, but Pompeo was. Pompeo also deferred on criticizing China. The president's been asked about this uh, the same day he signed the stimulus. He was asked, should there be a consequence for China for not being honest uh, with us, for giving us data that we relied on in our planning? It ultimately cost American lives. And the president... He praised the president of China, uh, and he was not willing to criticize them. He was pretty transparent. Why? Because he wants to make sure that trade deal stays intact. So it will be interesting to see uh, the World Health Organization. That's an obvious political fight that the president uh, can afford to take on. But not criticizing China, not holding them to account, that could have political consequences for the president uh, going forward, especially because their misinformation, disinformation, lack of transparency arguably cost American lives here. And it's worth noting that the president has tried to leave the impression that the World Health Organization got everything wrong with COVID-19 just as a matter of placing things properly on the calendar. On January 30th of this year, the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a public health emergency of international significance. On February 2nd, the president placed his travel restrictions on travel from parts of China into the United States, joining by that date, 35 other countries that impose some other order of travel restrictions. And of course, the president has also tried to sort of combine the China and Europe actions. The ones revolving travel restrictions to Europe did not begin or were not even announced until March 11th. Paula, there was also a conversation, this is going to continue for sure, about what the president knew and when 
whether it was a Peter Navarro economic advisor in the White House memo in late January or some intelligence documentation as early as November. What do we know? We know uh, Peter Navarro, one of the president's top economic advisors, circulated some memos in January and February warning about the potential consequences of coronavirus. In a memo that he sent out uh, in February, he suggested uh, up to two million American lives uh, could be lost. He took he, he talked about in one of these memos imposing uh, strict travel restrictions. Now, I talked to some sources inside the White House yesterday and they confirmed these memos. We have obtained uh, one of them. But I was told, look, a lot of people see Navarro as just someone who's always going to be anti-China. There were concerns that some of these warnings were overblown, uh, that some of these were just his, quote, anti-China musings. So they may not have been taken very seriously. My source could not confirm if these made it to the president's desk. Today, he kind of wavered. He's like, I was aware of the memos. But he says he really wasn't aware of the extent of the threat until shortly before he imposed those travel restrictions on China. So that's that's very late in January, early, early February. But Major... I was in Davos, Switzerland with the president on January 22nd, and I specifically asked him about the coronavirus because at that point, we had a diagnosed case in Washington state. At that time, uh, the president told me that he believed uh, that the situation would be under control. Uh, He said that he believed the CDC would, quote, be uh, terrific. They're in very good shape. And he said, quote, China is in good shape as well. And what's not clear is if on January 22nd, when we already had a diagnosed case, the president had truly been briefed on the extent of the threat and was trying to downplay it, or if he really didn't know. But this whole argument that he really wasn't aware of coronavirus, it just doesn't jive with the timeline of our reporting and our questions that we've posed directly to the president. Yes, and to your point, Paula, those of us who have been around the Trump White House uh, and from the time when it was forming during the transition and early on. Peter Navarro was regarded as kind of a China hothead. And as the president said in the Wednesday briefing, April 8th, Peter writes a lot of memos. That wasn't entirely dismissive, but it wasn't entirely embracing either. And to your reporting and to those of us who have also asked around this, there might have been a kind of not a bias necessarily against Peter Navarro, but a sense that, boy, he writes a lot of memos and is this one distinguishable from so many others? And maybe that distinguishing characteristic distinguished on the, ugh, not again, side instead of, hey, this is a fire alarm and we ought to take it more seriously. That's right. It was described to me as, well, Peter Navarro memos aren't exactly a must read here at the White House. And once we saw it, it is pretty dense. It doesn't look like the kind of thing you can just skim, especially if you're wading through so many other documents. So it does appear that something from Peter Navarro raising this red flag may not have gotten to the president's desk. And even if it did, may not have captured his attention the same way some of the warnings from his medical officials eventually did. And there was also, as there has been in the last uh, couple of briefings, references to positive signs in the data, but they are always buttressed by the medical professional saying these positive signs are of limited value if we do not, from a disciplined point of view, continue social distancing and acknowledging and heeding the stay-at-home orders. But even with this quote-unquote positive data, Vice President Pence said this is going to be a tough week. There is a lot of sorrow in the country. There is a lot to be somber about. And even the most positive appraisals, Paula, point to a death toll in the low 60,000s, a still staggering number. It is. And the vice president uh, described this as, quote, one American at a time, 
one heartbreak at a time. And that's a real contrast to the president who kicked off this uh, briefing uh, talking about hope, talking about winning and winning soon. And that's what you kind of have to reconcile when you watch these briefings. The president wants to reopen America. He sees this is a war. We're going to win. He's looking. He believes he needs to give people hope. But sometimes in doing that, uh, there are concerns behind the scenes that he gives people sort of misinformation or people misinterpret what he says as, oh, it's okay to go go out now. And that's when you have the vice president and the medical officials come out and say, look, this this appears to possibly be working, but it only truly works if we keep doing it. It's a very interesting uh, differentiation in approach, uh, in tone, and really in just how they see their objective. The vice president goes out there. He gives somber, sober information where the president sees himself, as he has said, uh, as a cheerleader for the country. And I want to give the audience a little bit of a perspective on how this has changed our work lives. Now, it doesn't matter to anyone, my regularity or irregularity at the White House, but uh, I have had some emails. Where are you? Well, I'm working from home for a couple of reasons. One, we're trying to maintain our strength of the White House Correspondent Corps. And I was there a couple of weeks ago. I was not allowed in the briefing room. I've been a White House correspondent for 15 years. Never have I been on the campus and not gone into the briefing room. But because we as a company and many other news organizations have done this as well, want to limit potential exposure, I'm forbidden from going in the briefing room. I also had my temperature taken on Pennsylvania Avenue before I could even approach the gate. That's my limited microscopic experience with this new reality. Paul, share some of yours. Well, anyone who's ever seen the briefing room on television, it looks a lot bigger on TV than it is in person. Uh, you are in close contact with dozens, sometimes on a busy day, hundreds of other reporters from all over the country, all over the world. It is a Petri dish, even outside uh, of, of a pandemic. There's two bathrooms, everyone's sharing them. Because of the nature of, of how claustrophobic, how, how tight this environment is, they've had to take precautions. That's why you only see a few people now in the briefings. There's now a rotation of reporters. If you're a network reporter like we are, you get to go about three out of every five days uh, to, to sit in the seat. Other outlets aren't even able to be there. there. There's a rotation so that we can keep up social distancing. That's why you see a couple, a couple seats in between uh, each reporter. Uh, that's just for the briefings. We've also adopted um, a, a sort of three every three week rotation where we have one correspondent. It's me, Ben Tracy, Weijia Jang, uh, the team that covers the White House. One of us is actually in the briefing room in our workspace there in the West Wing for one week while the other two work outside the White House. Um, but still one of us will go and maybe do an evening news hit, but you don't go inside. You just go, you go to the camera and then you leave. Um, and then this week I'm the, the designated survivor shift. I just stay home. I work from home. I make my calls from home. I contribute reporting. I talk to you. Uh, that's kind of how we're doing it because our hope is that by doing this three-week rotation that a lot of the other networks are doing too, that if anyone was to be exposed or to get sick, that there would be someone who had been outside of that environment for the two-week period who would presumably not be exposed and be able to go and cover this story that is so important from the White House. So that's, you know, that's how we're trying to continue to maintain our access while keeping people safe. It's, it's not easy. Paul, I want to thank you so much for your time. That's White House, CBS News White House correspondent Paula Reed. And that's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 
Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.